as, as the message was being relayed. Again, he wanted them to understand how serious this was. Uh, God wanted them to understand the, the grave error that they had made in walking away from God. But we also have to understand that as, as it was written in that way, it was also being written to a group of people who knew better. And so this wasn't the first time they'd heard these words. It would be very different if your child does something wrong for the first time, you correct them in a very different way than when they've done that same thing wrong the hundredth time. And many times has Israel forsaken God. Many times have they turned their back on God. Go back and read the book of Judges. What was the pattern that they were in? They were in a good place where they were serving God. Something would come up and it would lure them away. They'd give in to sin. They'd find destruction. They'd, they'd be led to repentance through the judges and they'd get back on the upward cycle again. And then what would happen in a short period of time? Oftentimes before they were even fully out of it, they were right back into it. And so God, as he's writing to them here or as he's relaying this message to them, he wasn't writing to people who didn't know. This message was going to people who knew the truth, yet they had willfully ignored the truth. And as we often say, before we give the children of Israel a hard time, how often are we in the very same boat that they were in? That we know what the word of the Lord says, and yet for whatever reason, most often it's because of our selfish pride, we think we can do better. We think we can uh, figure out a better path to go down. And so this was the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Haggai and, and Zechariah were also known prophets in this time period, and they too brought messages from God to the people. And the reason that multiple prophets came during this time period was because the situation wasn't good and it was only getting worse. And God wanted to give them ample warning. He wanted to give them ample opportunity to turn back to him and abandoning the things that they had started to cling to and, and take the word of God seriously once again. Now, as we think about the book of Nehemiah, wasn't there highlights in that time frame where the people came back, where they saw the temple fully restored? And though, though some of the old timers, when they looked at the temple, what did they do? They wept because it did not have the former glory that it used to have. But for the younger people, they rejoiced because they saw the glory of God in a new way and, and even with that excitement, even with the work of God being done in the way that it was done, we understand that that excitement didn't last, and that once again the people wandered away from God and found themselves in a bit of a mess. And so the, the title of tonight's lesson is The Love of God, and that fits well under the category of the faithfulness of God, and that's where God starts with His people. In verse number 2, He goes on to say this, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So the first thing that God is trying to relay to his people is that he loves them. What a way for a letter to start. With all the negative things that God is going to be sharing to them and with them in the coming verses, what a gentle and loving Heavenly Father to say, hey, I want you to remember, I love you. Now, as, as we understand communication and communication skills, we understand that it's often wise to start with the positive before you go into the negatives. And if anybody understands that truth, it's God the Father. 
And he's coming to them and saying, hey, I need you to remember, I need you to know this truth that I have loved you. I have loved you with a love like I've loved no other. I've provided for you in ways that nobody else has provided for you. And I've provided for you in ways that I have provided for nobody else. I have loved you. I have loved you with, with a heart of compassion, with a heart of sympathy, because I've seen you wander away so many times. I have loved you. And as those words were spoken, as Malachi relayed, God, relayed God's heart to these people, their response was simply this. When God says, I have loved you, their response was this. Wherein hast thou loved us? Now those, I think, had to be dangerous words to say. Because it, we're not involved in Israel's history from a, from a nationalistic standpoint, but we still understand the love of God towards Israel. If you think back to the book of Genesis, when Abraham was called out of the, the Ur of the Chaldees, God says, I've chosen you to make my name great. And we know that God gave uh, Abraham a son. Even in Abraham's sinfulness, God gave Abraham a son whom ultimately the line of Christ would come through. And he gave Isaac a son, two sons that we're going to talk about tonight, one of them being Jacob. And God provided for them time and time again. We think about the wandering in the wilderness. How often was God gracious to them when they were hard-hearted? How often was God gracious to them when they, they said, God, this is what we want to do, even though it's not what you want us to do? How often was God gracious to them when, when they did what was right in their own eyes while rejecting the very thing that God said was right in his eyes? Time and time again. If there was a group of people, I keep wanting to take a drink of my water and I'm just going to stop and do it. If there was a group of people who should have been familiar with the love of God, it should be the, the nation of Israel. Now we understand, as, as we understand the, the people of Israel as a whole, the nation as a whole, that not all who were of Israel were of Israel, right? That not all who were of Israel were actually believers. Uh, we understand that not all who are Gentiles are actually never having a chance to get saved. And so as, as Malachi is writing here, his desire is first off to remind them of the love that God has for them. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. And when they give, up, give, give this rebuttal as to ask the question, well, where have you loved us? God was quick to respond with this idea. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob? Now for us, Again, this might not mean much, but who was the older of the two brothers? Esau was. Who was it that the birthright was rightfully to? It was Esau. Now, we know that, that Esau, in his sinfulness and in his selfishness and in his short-sightedness, sold his birthright for um, some good stew that his brother whipped up for him. Uh, but God is relaying something specific here to them, and it was this, that you're not the one who I was supposed to love, but you're the one that I loved. From all earthly reasoning, from all earthly understanding, you're not the one who was supposed to carry the line. You're not the one who was supposed to receive the inheritance in the land. You're not the one who everything was supposed to flow through. But does God work in the way that we often work? He doesn't. And that's one of the beautiful stories of this, this um, encounter with Jacob and Esau and all that God did through them. From the very beginning, God is saying what? I'm going to do things in a way that you've never seen them done before. I'm going to work in a way that will blow the world's mind. 
And so when he tells them he loves them, this was an affirmation of his heart towards them. Now, this was not an affirmation of everything that Israel always did, right? It was an affirmation of his heart towards them, and those are two different things. For years, again, they had wandered away. For years, they found themselves in rebellion, and yet God was the one who was always bringing them back to himself. This idea of reminding his people of his love was not something specific to Malachi, but honestly, this is something that's seen in almost every other book of prophecy that there is. That in one way or another, God is reiterating to his people that he loves them. He endlessly declares his love for them, only to have them turn away and ignore him. In Deuteronomy 10, 15, the Bible says, Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. In Amos 3, 2, it says this, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Both of those verses are reminders of God's love for Israel, God's love for, the, for this nation. And in the book of Amos, we're seeing that even though he loved them, what did he still have to do to them? Still had to punish them. Why? Because their iniquity was great. And so God, again, is not simply affirming these people and all that they've done, but he's reminding them of his eternal love for them and his eternal love for them goes along with his eternal plan for the world. That through them would come the Savior. Through them would come the one who would die for the sins of the world. This love of Jacob over Esau was not a deserved love, but it was a love of grace that began in the heart of God. It's interesting, after Wednesday night, a group of us were having a discussion about some of these things. And uh, Evan brought up these verses in talking about Jacob and Esau and in Romans 9, verses 10 through 13, listen to what Paul says. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. This takes us back to the story in Genesis 25 where all of this began when Isaac entreated God for his wife that she would be able to have a child. And what does Genesis 25, 23 say? And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. She could feel the tension. She could feel the fighting that was going on in there. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. And so all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're reminded that God had a specific purpose for choosing the nation that he chose. We understand in Isaiah 49, 6, that that reason was that this nation, ultimately through Christ, would be a light to who? To the rest of the nations. That through this nation, the light of the truth of the gospel would shine forth as the Messiah came into the world. And Isaiah 49, 6 says this, and he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And so all of this and God declaring his love for them and describing his love for them was all tying into his eternal purposes. And who in here tonight can tell me with 100% assurance that you understand all of the eternal purposes of God? None of us can. 
And I'll be honest, passages like Malachi 1, 1 through 5 are hard passages. Passages like Romans 9, 10 through 13 are hard passages because they lay things out for us that our minds can't comprehend. And understand this, church, that that's okay. Do you understand that, and you may not like this, a lot of people don't like it when I say this, but do you understand that I'm okay with saying that I don't understand some things in the Bible? I don't. I think there are some things in the Bible that I'm not meant to understand. It's part of the divine mystery that keeps God where he is and keeps me where I am. And as we think about this on a national scale, as these two people were brought forth, God is clearly saying that I love one and I hate one. The Lord says, I have loved Jacob and Esau, his brother, I have hated. We're going to get into what that hatred looks like in a little bit. Um, but again, I, I want us to understand that, that these ideas sometimes are beyond what our minds can comprehend. They're above our understanding, and again, they're showing us the, the ultimate and eternal plan that God had set in motion before any of us were even alive. I think it's important to note, why did God love Jacob? Because he did it. And, and why did God hate Esau? Because it was his choice. And what does Paul tell us in Romans 9? That his choice of one and his rejection of the other was not based upon their works. It was based upon his eternal plan. And as I'll, I'll say it again, I don't understand it. And there's times in the Bible where I'll simply say that, and this is one of those times, I don't understand it. But we can oftentimes make the Bible say what it doesn't say, and in doing so, we do ourselves a disservice. Do you know what our hearts and minds should be when we walk away from this passage tonight? God, I don't understand you. I'm in awe of who you are, and it should cause us to bow before him in worship. And so Jacob's love, or God's love for Jacob was not because of who Jacob was, but it was because of the graciousness of God. And we understand that God wanted to have a people for himself that he would work through to show his love to the world. And just as, as Jacob did not deserve God's love, church, let us also be reminded that we do not deserve God's love. What did Jacob and Esau both really deserve? Separation from God forever. Why? Because they were sinful people. And as that was true for them, it's also true for us. And so as God is describing or expressing his love for his people in Malachi 1, verses 1 and 2, it's important for us to remember that he's doing so with a heart of, of compassion. He's doing so with a heart to, to push them or compel them forward in these thoughts that God loves them. And I find it interesting, we talked about this several months ago, that even in the New Testament when Paul writes about things that are similar to this, it's always meant to be an encouragement to the church. It's meant to be a, a, a compelling um, letter to them to get them to continue on in the things that God says. And so God starts out by saying, this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. He tells his people that he's loved them. They say, where have you loved us? And God says, I've loved you uh, in this, that I chose you over Jacob. And, and my choice of you was not because of who you were, my choice of you was founded in who I am. Well, then we get into verse 
3, and if you think verse 2 is hard, verse 3 is harder. Um, verse 3 says, And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Um, so Jacob have I loved, and we resonate with that. But then he goes on to say, And I hated Esau. Now, some have, have tried to say that this was just a lesser love, meaning that God's love for Jacob was so great that it, in turn it caused his love for Esau to look like a lesser love or almost like hatred, but that's not what the text says. God is declaring here that he has loved one and he has, for his reasons, hated the other, and this was not to do with any of their works, but it was in the heart and the mind of God. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what did this hatred look like? Well, we understand that Esau got to experience what? His, him and his people got to experience all of the common grace of God. There was nothing in them that said, God has been only negative to me, because what did they have to breathe? They had air to breathe. What did they have to drink? They had water to drink. What did they have to eat? Food that God provided for them. And so what would Paul tell us in Romans 1? that they are without excuse. That because of the, the state that they're in, because of the trajectory, trajectory that they had walked on, it was by their doing, in some sense, because they had rejected the ways that God has chosen to declare His glory in the earth. And if you read through Israel's history, who was it that was always a thorn in Israel's side? It was these people. You read in the book of Esther, and do you, do you know that Haman's great-great-great-grandfather, however far back it went, was an Edomite. The Agagites were a part of the Edomite tribe. And what was Haman dead set on doing? Destroying the people of God. And so these people were always at odds. These people were always against each other. They were never moving in the same direction. And even though Israel had often sinned and turned their back on God, what was the difference between Israel and, or, or Jacob's line and Edom's line or Esau's line? The one repented and the one didn't. The one saw the error of their way and the other one continued in their sinfulness. And so while... We see this, and we're confused by it, and at least I am. I scratched my head over it. I told Brianna on the way down here, I said, I'm nervous about the lesson tonight because there's things in it that I don't understand. There, there's things that we're going to talk about that I, I don't fully grasp or know. But do you know where my confidence is? That God does know, and that God does fully understand. And that as God worked then, God is still working today, and he's doing things that are beyond what our minds can hold. And so he says again in verse 3, And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. When you hear that, what do you think of? Judy. It could have been, uh, it could have been a dragon. You know, there, there are things certainly in the Old Testament that... <laughs> um, I think ultimately it could be pointing to a greater desolation that came upon them because of the... the uh, arrogance in their hearts, the pride that was in their hearts. Um, but does that situation sound good? God says, I've, I've hated Esau, and I've laid their, their mountains to waste, I, I, and his heritage for waste for the dragons of the wilderness. God is saying that, that these people have, have so profaned my name, that they have so wandered away from me, that their hearts have been so hard, that they have no heritage to come after them. 
And as we think of the people of Edom today, do we know of a people of Edom on this earth at this present time? No. We hear of their, their future in some of the prophecies where God talks about them, but most scholars tend to think that that's just grouping a group of people together who were enemies of Israel, that they're talking about the future of these nations who, who hated Israel or who mistreated Israel. Uh, some people say that the, the, the uh, Edomites somehow got taken into the Roman society, which proved that that's why Rome was so against God. I don't know if that's true. In Genesis, we talked a little bit about the Edomites and how they became, from a DNA standpoint, kind of the European people, that that's where they settled in the land. And so that could be true. So their DNA probably still lives on. But what nation do we, do we know about? What nation does still stand? people of God, the people that God chose to show his glory through. I appreciated what Spurgeon said on, on this section of scripture, um, and it's kind of lengthy, but I want to read it, and, and I, if you don't get it all, I'll gladly share it with you afterwards. He says this about this idea of God's love and hatred. He says, do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able to thoroughly elucidate the great mysteries of predestination. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter. They twist it around their fingers as easily as, easily as if it were an everyday thing, but depend on it. Who, uh, he who thinks he knows all about the mystery knows but very little. It is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge. He who, is, he, he who dives deep finds that there is in the lowest depth to which he can attain a deeper depth still. The fact is, the great questions of man's responsibility, free will, and predestination have been fought over and over and over again, and have been answered in 10,000 different ways, and the result has been that we know just as much about the matter as when we first began. The combatants have thrown dust in each other's eyes, and have hindered each other from seeing, and then they have concluded that because they put other people's eyes out, they could therefore see. I, I appreciate that. Because what's he saying? He's saying, I don't know. I don't know. And, and how does this all work in um, with, with Jacob and Esau and the love and the hatred? That's, again, where I stand or land on the matter is that I don't know and I don't have it figured out, but God does. But as we read this passage today, again, God is reminding us of his love for his people and he's reminding them of his eternal plan for them. As we continue talking about the people of Edom or the people of Esau, uh, we understand that the New Testament has some things to say about them as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, he says this, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for ye know that how afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. As God pens down for us Esau's testimony in the New Testament, what does he say? That there's been no profane person or fornicator as bad as who? As bad as Esau. And what little glimpses we get of him in the Bible, what did God see? The whole picture. God saw his heart and the direction that he was going in. And even though he cried with tears when there wasn't a blessing for him, why do we know that that wasn't a cry of repentance? because his life never changed. He continued to go in the same direction. 
And while the relationship between the boys was not good, and while the relationship really between the parents was not good, uh, we see God uses this story in some ways to describe his eternal love for his people and the eternal plan that he has for them, while also showing us the eternal mind that Jacob had in some degree and the very earthly mind that Esau had in another degree. And so God says, Esau, I've hated you. Jacob, I've loved you. And then we get to see Esau's response to the matter. In verse 4, he says, Whereas uh, Edom saith, we are impoverished, impoverished, but we will return and rebuild the desolate places, saith the Lord of hosts. But what does God say? They that build, uh, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Now, quick scholarly question for you. What does forever mean? It means forever. And so again, as, as we understand or try to understand, or maybe you're like me and you sit here with a jaw open to the floor saying, I still don't understand. Again, we understand that God does have it figured out. And this, this horrible scene that verses 3 and 4 relay to us, we understand that, that God says, I'm going to destroy them. But what is their attitude towards God? but we're just going to build it up again. So again, we see that the arrogance in their heart is pointing to this reality that they were far from God. Many wonder when this scene was taking place, if it was, if it was one of the wars that took place in the Old Testament. We know that Obadiah also, in fact, most of Obadiah's letter is about the Edomites. It's about the, the, the destruction that was coming upon them. In verse 18 of Obadiah 1, it says this, "...and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame." and the house of Esau for stubble. If one is a fire and one is a flame and you're the stubble, what does that mean for you? You're doomed. Nothing good is coming from this. And it says, And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And so as, as God again describes for us the situation concerning uh, Jacob and Esau, he's reminding us that his, his plan for Jacob's line for Israel was eternal, and his plan for Esau, in part because of the hardness of their heart, was indeed destruction. And then we get into verse 5, and then I'm going to let you talk. I just wanted to make it all, all the way through this, and then we'll see if anybody has anything to add. Verse 5 says, and, and your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. What did we start with? What was the theme of tonight? The love of God. And God says, Israel, Jacob, I want you to know that I have loved you. And when you question me and you ask, well, how have you loved us? I'll remind you that I chose Jacob over Esau. And just to point, uh, make my, my point even further, God says, I'm going to remind you that in rejecting Esau, I didn't just reject them but I set them up for an eternal doom because of the hardness of their hearts and their heritage is going to be laid waste and their mountains are going to be laid waste. And when they build up, we're going to, God, God says, I'm going to destroy them. I will throw it down. And, and they shall call the Edomites the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. 
And what did God want Israel's response to be? That your eyes shall see and that you shall say, the Lord be magnified from the border of Israel. And so what was God seeking to drive home to his people in the opening verses of this letter? I have loved you. I have loved you. I have protected you. I have provided for you. I've had an eternal plan for you. God's reminding them what their response should be. God's desire was that their eyes would be open and they would magnify the one true God who is, their God whom they followed, whom they served, though imperfectly, uh, that, that they would lift up their voices and proclaim His goodness. And as I thought through this passage of Scripture, the way that I concluded it in my mind, and you may not like this, but the way that I concluded it in my mind is this. One got what he deserved, and one didn't get what he deserved. One got what he deserved, and one didn't get what he deserved. Jacob got what he did not deserve. He did not deserve the love of God. He did not deserve God's compassion. He did not deserve God's heart for him. In his wickedness, what does Jacob mean? Even in his name, what does his name mean? The deceiver, the supplanter. And yet God says, you're the one that I've loved. You're the one that I'm going to bring my son through to, to make the gospel, the glorious gospel, shine to the ends of the earth. You're the one, even in your imperfections, Jacob, I have chosen you out of all the other people to make my name great. Jacob got what he didn't deserve, and Esau got what he did deserve. And though that's hard for us to, to wrap our minds around, and though I'm not going to stand here today again and say, I have it figured out, that's what the Word of God describes to us. And so I'm going to stand with Spurgeon, that I don't understand how predestination and free will and sovereignty works. I actually hate the argument. You want to know why? Because it detracts from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It causes brothers who should be on the same team to end up fighting and, and, and dividing and, and talking about each other rather than uniting on the one thing that they know is true, and that is this, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And though I don't have it figured out, I can rest in my heart and mind that God does. The whole topic that we discussed tonight, the whole idea of the love of God brought up in Malachi was to strengthen the remembrance of Israel concerning the love that God had for them. And it was to encourage them to live in that love daily. As we wrap things up tonight, in, in just a minute, we'll have a few minutes to talk. I want us to think about even our own salvation. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If God has shown us mercy, then we must prepare our hearts to seek Him, to stay sensitive to Him, and to follow Him. Israel as a nation was always wandering, and their wandering was simply the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. The wandering was the fruit. The root was in their heart. And I love what Charles Feinberg said on this. The root of all her sins was her unawareness of God's love for her. 
And friend, oftentimes that's the root of our sins as well. And so we met, may we never make the mistake that Israel made, and may we never need a letter like this to be written to us to draw, to draw us back to Him. All right, I said a lot. And now I'm curious if anybody has anything to add. There's certainly a lot to discuss here. Dave? They've tried to rebuild. They've come back, and this this Jerusalem's not all it's cracked up to be. And, and they're 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 like, so what is what is what do you mean you love us? This yeah. is this is what we've been dealing with since the beginning. And uh, I just think it's it's amazing. He takes it one step backwards from there. If you want to go all the way back to Joseph going to Egypt, and he says, well, let's let's go back one and and go to Jacob. There were two paths. Yeah. 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 No, I think that is cool, and I think it resonates with the heart of the psalmist at times, that says, "Why do the heathen rage? Right? Why? Why is it the the wicked of the world that they're prospering, and yet God, your people are the ones who seem to be suffering?" And again, you know, in their lives and in our lives, there's always such a short or nearsightedness that we never see the grand scope of what's God what God is doing. And we're not meant to. You know, there's a, there's a part of us that some of that grand scope of things is meant to remain mystery until what? Until we see him face to face. Then all these things that were uh, murky and dim will be made clear and visible. But that's a good thought for sure. Anybody else? Judy. Yeah, and I, you know, I think as it started with God choosing a nation for himself, I think there's, there's still, in some regards, an eternal plan to Israel. And what does that look like? Again, we don't fully know. We know that, that there are promises to them um, that aren't applicable um, in some ways to us. There, there's different ways that God is going to work through them in the future. Um, but it just goes to show the cohesiveness of God's plan from beginning to end, that there was never an afterthought in it all. And, and you're right, Judy, that there, there are many who would be uh, ethnic Jews who still have totally missed the boat on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them. And that's a sad reality, but that's, you read through the book of Acts, and that's the reality then as well, that many in that day missed the boat on who Jesus truly was, um, and hopefully their eyes will be open to the truth. Somebody else? Bruce? Yeah. 
Yeah. It's Right. No. <laughs> no, and it, you know the the interesting thing again as we think about God's plan. How many times did God reveal to His people that He was sending a Messiah? Many times. And yet, how many people? How many of those very same people rejected Him when He actually came? Many of them. Because they, he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted him to be. He didn't come to do the things that they had thought. And while the people of Israel often got sidetracked with this idea of a land, right? They always wanted the land. They always wanted the, the kingdom, that type of thing. When Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is here, their minds were blown because that was not the kingdom that they were anticipating. And so they rejected it because it wasn't what their hearts were set on. And isn't it sad that we could often reject the best thing that God has because we don't see it in the way that God wants us to see it? But that's what people do with Christ often. Somebody else, any thoughts? All right. Well, oh, who had their hand up? Judy? Oh, Evan? <laughs> That's, that's a great illustration, and that's, you know, when Jesus and John are having that conversation, or Jesus and Nicodemus, he says, the wind blows where, where it wills, right, where it wants to, and that's that wind of the Spirit that's doing the work of God, and who has control over that? Do you? Do I? No. It's God who, who has control over that, and when he does his work and how he does his work are things that are beyond what our minds can even grasp. Who here would say you wish you got saved? as a six-year-old so that you didn't have to go through some of the things you faced in life. Many of you would. But when was God's desire for you to be saved? When you got saved? When the Spirit worked in your heart to open your eyes to reveal to you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody else? I was getting nervous we might end early, but I think we're right on time now, so...
No, they, they would have been the first at that point. They, they still would have been the first original family, and so they would have established their own city. They, they would have been the first people group who, um, I mean, they, yeah, they inhabited the earth. That's what God's command was to them. And so um, the, the big question that people always ask is, how did, how did Adam and Eve's kids have kids? Well, they had to marry each other. They had, they had to have babies with each other. And the, the gene pool at that point would have been so pure that there wouldn't be the birth defects that we would see today if things like that took place. But they had to start somewhere, right? And so God in his perfection could have a plan that blows our mind. We wouldn't participate in that today. We wouldn't condone that today. But when you only have two people and those two people are the only ones having kids, you got to start from the ground up and work your way from there. And so that's what, that's what kind of happened in the, in the book of Genesis. So there was no other people around at that point. It was just them and their kids. No, the only, uh, the only people that were created in that original creation account would have been Adam and Eve, and then after that, they all would have been born by natural process. So Adam and Eve didn't have belly buttons, but everybody else did. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Who chose this book, Malachi, anyways? Yep. Well, you can be confused as the rest of us, Judy. <laughs> Anybody else before we dismiss in prayer?